Hello, and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Andre Kleiner. Andre has 30 years of engineering, research, consulting, and managerial experience, specializing in the reliability of electronic and mechanical systems designed to operate in severe environments. He's a global reliability engineering leader with Delphi Electronics and Safety and an adjunct professor at Purdue University. Andre is a fellow of the American Society for Quality and has authored multiple publications and books. He's the editor of the Wiley series in quality and reliability engineering and the co-author of Practical Reliability Engineering, now in its fifth edition. Andre has a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Maryland and an MBA from Ball State University. Andre, welcome and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you and I'm very pleased to be here and thank you guys for, for doing this. Andre, you had an article recently in ASQ Quality Progress, I guess it was a few years ago, that was titled Discussion Warranted. And in that article you warned that warranty management is more complicated than it may appear. What are some of the aspects that people may overlook? Well, uh, most of the people think of warranty as uh, kind of very simple and boring legal commercial transaction when if something breaks down, the manufacturer should take care of that. And, and it's, it's kind of true, but actually there's much more to warranty uh, than meets the eye. And actually, uh, working in the warranty department uh, for about five years was probably the most interesting job I had before. Uh, mm -hmm. As far as this article in an ASQ uh, magazine, um, I'll let you in a little secret. Uh, the original title of that article was not uh, discussion warranted. It was uh, actually the gruesome octopus of warranty. And, uh, <laughs> Let me, let me show you how it actually looked when I submitted it to the paper. And the editor said, oh, since your octopus actually have more uh, tentacles than eight, then we need to change the <laughs> title. But, but actually, I kind of like the original, uh, original title of this article. And if you can look at this gruesome octopus, you can see that uh, warranty actually affects uh, quite a few area and uh, both engineering and commercial and business. So if you just look at this uh, at this diagram, you see there's a marketing, there's a reliability, there's a global distribution, uh, the supply chain and accounting and you, you name it. Uh, pretty much every functional area uh, in a corporation, especially large corporation, uh, has some involvement uh, in warranty. And uh, in that article, uh, basically, I kind of I will simplify this because of the space. But basically, I kind of split it in two different flows. Uh, one was a commercial flow, basically showing all those uh, commercial functional areas involved in hmm. in warranty. Uh, so you can see in marketing and in contracts and in like I said, some of it was left out, like supply chain. And also something which I probably was more involved with uh, was showing the uh, engineering or technical flow, 
when you can see where different engineering and, and the quality and reliability functions were actually involved in this process. So I'm probably not right. going to go into details, so you can uh, people can read the article. But like I said, uh, warranty is, is much more complicated, and I would also say a bit underutilized source of information. Uh, because if you do property management right and collect all the data coming from the field, you can learn a lot about your product, and actually you can do a lot in improving your product. Um, just looking at all the failure modes and failure mechanisms and, and like I said, uh, improving design by feeding this information back to the design teams. You know, Andre, I'm really glad you highlighted engineering. I think everyone agrees that managing warranty costs really starts with good design from the engineering group. How can we do a better job of helping engineering avoid warranty costs through better design? Well, um, when we're talking about warranty costs, uh, one thing we probably need to keep in mind is warranty is not homogeneous. And uh, let me show you uh, another diagram right here. This is actually, uh, I have a section in, in my book, uh, Practical Reliability Engineering, about mm -hmm. warranty. And this diagram shows that uh, there's a lot of different factors. Like when, when we receive products back and, and have a chance to do engineering analysis, there's a, a lot of different source of, sources of uh, warranty failures. And like you can mm -hmm. see here, like as a uh, design and, and quality and, and uh, something we call NTF, no trouble found, and there's a fraud right. in warranty. Yes, and, and there's a lot of noise in the data. So basically, I would uh, classify this, there's several key sources of, of warranty information. And uh, uh, the, the, probably the major two are the manufacturing issues and design issues, hmm. which are not necessarily related. Uh, with each other. And basically, if you're trying to improve warranty, you need to understand what's basically your biggest contributor. And like I said, the, the, the two key contributors to warranty, and that probably goes for uh, every industry, is manufacturing and design. And But also there's some others, like uh, what we call NTF, is no trouble found, or we mm -hmm. now have a, uh, a bit more uh, politically correct term for that. CCNV, uh, mm -hmm. customer complaint uh, not verified, and right. it also misuse abuse. So basically, if you if you want to go after, uh, if 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 you see that uh, the biggest contributor is manufacturing, that basically that's what you need to go after. And the way to improve it, basically improving your manufacturing processes, uh, avoid spills or contaminations or any other potential issues. Uh, if that's design issues, in design issues, basically it's uh, cases when, uh, this, to, to, to speak simply, stress on the part exceeds its strength. And this is the one probably most difficult to deal with uh, because you need to basically change the design and uh, the methods like um, design for reliability will, right. will be very helpful yeah, in, in, in achieving that. Uh, I probably want to say a few words about the NTFs, no trouble founds, because this is probably one of the most annoying uh, parts of, uh, of, of warranty, because basically what happens is 
part comes back to the manufacturer and you do engineering analysis and and seem to be nothing nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. so right. like I said yeah this is this is the most difficult to deal with uh, but but again this needs to be addressed and uh, in the automotive industry where I work on some of the electronic parts we had up to 90% of parts coming back and and this we couldn't find anything wrong with that Wow, so again, this 90%. Is, yeah. That's amazing. Yes, up to 90%. So that's an issue, and like I said, uh, um, there's different ways to deal with that, different type of testing, and, and uh, so, um, and again, this is, this is reality. But like I said, the two main factors are manufacturing and design, and they need to be dealt separately. And also what I would like to add is the knowledge the study of uh, warranty data, what's coming back from the field is critical here because without doing this type of engineering analysis of the parts, you won't know what's actually causing uh, warranty hmm. failures. Yes, and when you do, you understand what's your biggest contributor and this way you can probably focus your engineering resources uh, much better, like I said, going for after the big contributors. One more thing I'd like to add is that uh, basically warranty management is, is extremely better now than it was 20 years ago. So for example, if in, in like early mid 90s, you would uh, dive into General Motors database and ask them, okay, so what was the biggest failure mode or what was the biggest contributor to, right. uh, to warranty, they probably would tell you, we don't know. What we know is, <laughs> yes, what we know is how much we spent on warranty in 1993, and maybe we can split that between Buick, Cadillac, and Oldsmobile, but that was about it. Today, it's a totally different picture because you would get a lot of engineering information uh, from the warranty databases and which would help you to actually identify the biggest uh, problems and uh, potentially fix them. You know, Andre, I, I, I want to build on that last point. Uh, we often hear people talk about big data today. Uh, it seems like a lot of organizations have uh, a lot of data on warranty, but they have a hard time drawing meaningful conclusions from that data. What advice do you have for those, those teams? Well, basically, uh, I think there's the two parts to your question. One is when there's not enough data. Uh, right. And another one is, is, is big data, when you have too much data. That's a good point. Good point. Do, good I, point. Understand, do I understand this correctly? Yes, that's right. Okay. So basically, let me then answer kind of two parts of this question, okay? So the first one is when we don't have enough data. And, and this hmm. is actually something... I kind of spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, researching uh, when, uh, and mostly uh, on reliability demonstration and uh, uh, just, just if you look at this table right here, uh, this table shows a number of test samples you need to test to success to demonstrate certain reliability and a certain sample size, uh, certain confidence, I'm sorry, a certain right. reliability at certain confidence. So just if you look at uh, one of those, let me, let me point here, 
Okay, so, so if, if you try to demonstrate 99% reliability, which is okay reliability, nothing to write home about, uh, mm -hmm. with a confidence level of 90%, you're going to need 229 samples basically to test to success. This, right. I don't think there's any industry out there which can <laughs> basically do that or can afford I to agree. do that. So, so in this case, basically what you're going to do about that, and in, in those cases, I think reliability science probably becomes more of an art than a science where hmm. you can actually uh, see what you can do with, uh, with a smaller sample size and still uh, extract uh, a decent amount of information from that. So there's different statistical methods, different studies uh, showing like, okay, how you can extract more statistical information with a smaller sample. But I think the critical thing here is probably understanding of your product and uh, have that experience and maybe have this previous knowledge of similar products and see mm. Uh, what you can learn from from maybe something which failed in the past on the previous version of this product and focus on the unknown parts of the design so and and in this case i mean you can you can do bayesian statistics or uh, again you can probably look at uh, parts coming back from the field and see what uh, what you what you've learned from uh, like I said from about the previous versions of the design and then uh, handle basically uh, the testing and, and learn as much as you can with a small sample now um, the other side and oh by the way this also problem with with a sample size is sample size may not always be representative of your final product meaning Good point. that you, yes uh, you testing something today but what you're testing today may over uh, may go through uh, several different changes before it actually makes the production. So again, uh, that's where the previous experience and knowing what to focus on comes extremely handy. Now the second part of your question uh, was about big data. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of like other side of the coin, and and and. Um, uh, usually, in the past, you would never hear uh, engineers complaining about having too much data. <laughs> now there there are, <laughs> and that's that's with with the big data. And and actually, warranty data can be considered as uh, that big data because you can mm. download uh, millions of, uh, of pieces of information from 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 warranty database and kind of look at this and say. What am I going to do with this? And right. also keep in mind that data is is pretty noisy because sometimes it's not exactly uh, like like for example mileage on the vehicles. What goes back in the database sometimes is not very accurate because people are busy and they they enter the data. It's like okay, it looks mm. like uh, twenty thousand miles when it may be two hundred thousand miles. So right. again, this is. Yeah, and and now there's there's a lot of new tools which actually help you to process all the data and and kind of try to extract uh, something meaningful meaningful out of it. So, but again, this is this those things take take a little bit of time and skill to to master. 
I think that's really the challenge, Andre, is trying to figure out how to extract information or knowledge out of so much data. Yeah, we we have a, a data a data mining tool. Uh, I think it's mm -hmm. called Endeka. We've used lately, and we were pretty happy about this because again, you're dealing with like millions and millions of records in the database. How you sort them out, and like if you have a model, like let's say we we manufacture radios, and that radio may go on General Motors, and the same radio we may sell to Toyota or Hyundai, and those kind of tools, they actually help you to collect all this data and say, okay, uh, it's not just GM or it's not uh, Hyundai separately, it's, it's basically the same model, and uh, to, to put it all together and do analysis of, of that radio, not just the radio we sell to GM or Ford. Right, right, that makes sense. Andre, I want to change gears on you for a minute and, and talk to you a little bit about your experience in education and training. You've, you've written books on reliability and warranty management, and as I mentioned before, you're currently the editor of the Wiley series in quality and reliability engineering. What do you think is the current state of education and training in reliability and engineering? Do you think universities and industries are giving it the attention that it deserves? Well, uh... <laughs> It's actually a question I probably can talk for hours, but uh, I promise <laughs> not to do that. Basically, I would characterize the situation with reliability education is somewhere between uh, pretty bad and awful. And I can explain why I think that. And, and like you mentioned, I kind of have also, uh, uh, besides my in uh, engineering career in the industry, I also have an academic career. Right. And at some point, I was actually uh, thinking about switching to academia. And what I found that actually nobody is looking for uh, professors. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about universities. Um, mm -hmm. no, nobody is looking to hire professors who specialize in reliability. Very few schools mm -hmm. in the United States actually uh, train reliability engineers. Uh, I, I usually joke that reliability engineers are not trained, they are grown, uh, meaning that uh, pretty much all of our reliability engineers who work in our department, they come with a degree most of the time in electrical engineering because we manufacture electronics, and we train them internally because very few people come to the industry with having maybe even one training, one, one course university mm -hmm. course in reliability engineering. And things are not any better in Europe or, or uh, in, in Asia. And the reason is everybody wants to hire a professor or everybody wants to learn about cool stuff like nanotechnology nah. or renewable energy or hybrid vehicles or lithium-ion batteries. But very few people want to learn how actually things fail. <laughs> and, and again, I jokingly uh, call it as a uh, uh, dark side of engineering. So nobody wants to be on the dark side of engineering, but the reality is that the industry actually uh, needs reliability engineers, and very few schools train them. So basically, it, it's a bit of a problem. And the way we deal it at uh, Delphi Electronics and Safety, where I work, uh, basically part of my job is to put together trainings 
And like before, it was more like informal training. We have a new, mm-hmm. uh, new uh, engineer coming out of school, and he worked with someone who's been on the job for, for quite some time and, and basically learning on the job. But the thing is, we everybody's busy now, and not too many people have time to basically tutor young engineers coming from, from, from schools. So basically, we put together short courses, internal short courses on, in reliability engineering. We call it a validation college. Uh-huh. And we have uh-huh. like a level one, level two, level three. So again, to kind of formalize a little bit reliability training. And also part of my job is, since I work for a global company, I travel to uh, our global sites, like in Europe and Asia Pacific, and, and sometimes do kind of life trainings uh, with, with, with our engineers there. But again, mm-hmm. the problem is here, and how to solve it, I, I know how to solve it at, uh, at the industry level, just like basically the way we're trying to solve it with internal engineering courses. But I'm not sure how to solve it at the academia level because the mm. trend kind of continues. So um, I, I think you make a good point. I think people people are more interested in sort of the the cool new technology, but of course there are reliability issues associated with any technology. So uh, absolutely, that's that's interesting. Um, Andre, how critical is the understanding of failure modes and the physics of failure in general to be successful as a reliability engineer? Well, uh, this is yeah, this is part of uh, what I consider as reliability education, and I even have a joke for that too. Believe it or not, uh, it was not a, actually a joke; it was a quote, uh, which was published by uh, one of the issues of um, ASQ Quality Progress. Mm-hmm. Basically, mm-hmm. I like I like to say that uh, in reliability engineering, physics trumps mathematics, meaning that uh, when we deal with problems, uh, oftentimes our management tells us, oh, go do viable analysis, do those curves, tell us how many parts we expect to fail in two years. But what's probably most important to kind of take a step back and look and see what actually is failing in the field and understand uh, what it is. Is it fat- sure. due to fatigue or the we're dealing with dendritic growth, so it's it's a metal migration, or it's it's something vibration-related, uh, fracture. Because this is, I think, it's 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 foremost uh, critical uh, part to understand uh, what what is failing, and then kind of take uh, necessary actions to basically correct that failure. Uh-huh. Um, it's also very important that uh, you probably hear a lot about Holt and Haas, and I'm not going to talk much about Holt and Haas today, but just one thing I want to mention. One of the biggest problems, and, and, and Holt and Haas are excellent tools, so just, just for the record, but one of the biggest problems is to basically um, correlate what you see failing uh, during Holt and Haas uh, to, to the failures in the field. And this is probably one of the critical things because it's not always, they're not always correlated, and understanding physics of failure is, is probably very critical to, to that kind of understanding and, and solving design problems. Andre, 
generally speaking, what industries do you see as the leaders in reliability engineering? And what can we learn from them? Well, uh, I'll give you my highly biased opinion, okay? <laughs> uh, since, since I work uh, for the automotive industry, uh, we make mostly automotive electronics. I would say automotive, and, and I'll explain uh -huh. why I think that. Because, again, it depends how you actually de define leadership and reliability. There's probably mm -hmm. different ways to, to define that, but I would define it as the ability to design reliable products which is uh, subjected to a pretty harsh environment. And by harsh sure. environment, I'm talking about vibration, humidity, temperature, and, and, and so on. And I think that automotive products are, are subject to that kind of environment. Uh, you may argue that, okay, there are other industries, like, for example, avionics, uh, defense industry, which actually have their products subject to probably more harsh environment, and I would agree with you. But the thing is, those industries, and I'm again talking about avionics and defense industry, uh, they don't have a, a cost pressure uh, as much as automotive industry has. And Good point. By, yeah, by, by cost pressure is that, first of all, uh, for, let's say, avionics, redundancy is more or less a norm when for automotive industry, it's more of an exception. So we need to design things reliable from the start, and we cannot basically rely on having a parallel system operating at the same time, so if one system fails, then another one kicks in and, right. and <laughs> continue working. So, and, and I would say uh, that uh, with my years in automotive industries, I think that automotive industry have a lot of good processes in place and um, uh, a lot of uh, both design processes and manufacturing processes. Uh, you do hear about those recalls and, and given, especially lately, all those GM uh, problems and, and, and right. those ignition switch and other recalls. But keep in mind that uh, the volumes we're talking about in the automotive are humongous. Uh, for example, for us, let's say we make a, a car radio, and when we say radio, it's not just radio. Uh, we just keep calling them radios, but it's a CD <laughs> player, maybe a 6 CD changer, navigation system. It's, it's still, we call them radios. But for us, it's if, if the volume is less than a million, it's considered fairly low volume. Mm -hmm. So, again, and, and this is just maybe one radio we sell to one customer, and we have multiple radios and we have other products like engine controllers and they, we're all talking about millions and there's other automotive manufacturers and suppliers which also produce in millions so when we talk about this kind of volumes uh, then yeah things happen but again I still believe that automotive industry has the best practices in place um, and also I'll, I'll add that uh, during a recession, I had a chance to do some uh, consulting work and worked with customers in different industries, and that kind of actually re reinforced my belief in the automotive industry as probably putting together most reliable products. You know, Andre, I think you're right. Just looking at the high volumes, uh, the cost pressures, the, the, the service conditions, uh, and just the complexity uh, of an automotive uh, system. I think you're right. I think it's uh, 
clearly has a lot of challenges. Andre, one last question. What do you see in the future of reliability engineering? What are some of the emerging trends that you think will have an impact on the industry as a whole? Well, um, first of all, I'm very excited about the future of reliability engineering because I think it's, it's, it's pretty bright. Because, uh, but the main challenge, I think, remains is the new technologies because we have uh, those, a lot of new technologies uh, coming in and as any new technology, uh, its reliability is, uh, is not proven yet, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, for example, yeah, we have uh, new microprocessors, like some in your cell phone or in, in other electronics, and they keep uh, basically the feature size is getting smaller and smaller. We talk about nano, uh, nanometers, so if... Uh, even a few years ago, we were talking about maybe 100, 130 nanometer microprocessors. Now we're talking about double digits, like what, mm. 18, 40 or something. And that's a challenge. And like I said, it's not, I'm not just talking about uh, ICs, integrated circuits. I'm talking about, in general, new technology because it's not mm -hmm. proven. And that's where I think uh, the role of reliability engineering is, is very critical to understand mm -hmm what are the failure modes, what can potentially fail, and, and deal with that. One other thing is one of other challenges for many years to come is lead-free solder. Uh, we probably many people, at least people working in the electronics industry, know that there's a, a regulation coming from Europe banning a lot of what they call hazardous materials, and lead is one mm -hmm. of them. So basically, electronics industry is switching from a tin lead, which we dealt with for 50, uh, probably more than 50 years in the past. Now uh, we're switching to lead-free. And one of the things is, is really, we, first of all, we haven't had that much experience with lead-free. And second is there's no one lead-free solder. Uh, there right. is one tin lead, uh, but Basically, we, we don't even have a formulation. Right now, it's uh, probably the most common lead-free solder is what's called SAC uh, 305. It's a combination, certain combination of, uh, of, of tin, uh, tin, silver, and, mm -hmm. um, and copper. But again, things keep developing, and, and people coming up with new alloys and new formulations, and that, that's a big challenge. And, and like I said, that's what make, makes our job uh, is, is, is very exciting. Uh, other thing is I wanted to mention, and I don't know if it's true in, in all the industries, but it's certainly true in, in, in quite a few industries, is toughening of reliability requirements for the products. Yes. So I'll give you an example. Yeah, I'll give you an example uh, in the automotive industry. For example, some years back, it was typical uh, what we call mission life for an electronics, automotive electronics, was 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then it was slowly started switching to 15 years. So most of our customers basically uh, have their requirement for 15-year life. And, and we're not talking about we design for mission life. We don't design for warranty. Some people kind of confuse the two. So we, we need to design for 15-year life. And that actually makes the design process and especially testing uh, much longer. 
But now, actually, we see the trend, some of the customers actually talking about 20-year life. So wow. That's another challenge. Yeah. Like, uh, I just recently bought Hyundai, and they're giving me 20-year and 200,000 miles warranty. <laughs> Not the whole part, but, but the, main, the, 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 main criti- the most critical part. So um, that's another challenge. Also, uh, we have a kind of, I call it bureaucratic challenge, and that's a proliferation of different regulations and standards, mostly coming from Europe. And one of the examples is functional safety standard. And mm-hmm. the functional safety, uh, to me, again, it's just a, I'll give you my personal opinion, at least the way it applies to, um, to us, uh, the automotive suppliers, and probably most of our competitors, is basically a lot of bureaucracy we need to deal with. It doesn't really change the way we, uh, we uh, design and manufacture products, but actually we, it creates a lot of new processes, a lot of new paperwork, and that's again, it's it's not a it's not a great challenge. It's not a, as interesting challenge as uh, basically new technology, but it is a challenge. Something we need to deal with and make sure that all our processes comply uh, with with the functional safety and all those standards. And probably last one, at least last I mentioned, a challenge for the years to come is is in power electronics, and that's a good challenge because uh, uh, we understand that uh, industry is kind of switching towards hybrid and electric vehicles. And this is something we don't have a lot of experience with. Uh, but, but again, there's a lot of reliability issue with power electronics because of high power and high currents, high voltages, and mm-hmm. uh, the parts are bigger and design is different, and something we kind of looking forward to, to meet. So, again, there's some other challenges, but those probably few I wanted to mention. It's going to be interesting. Andre, thanks so much for your insights today. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure to be here, and I'd like to thank uh, Fred Schenkelberg and Tim Rogers for organizing this interview. Uh, Great job, guys. Thank you. That was Andre Kleiner, editor of the Wiley Series in Quality and Reliability Engineering at John Wiley & Sons and co-author of Practical Reliability Engineering, now in its fifth edition. For more information, please visit www.andre-kleiner.com. This is Tim Rogers. Thanks for joining us.